Well, good afternoon and welcome to St Paul's Cathedral and to this Sunday Forum. Uh, our speaker for today is Dr Ruth Valerio. Ruth is the Global Advocacy and Influencing Director at TF Fund. I love that title, an Influencing Director, and an environmentalist, a theologian and a social activist. She has recently been appointed to the honorary position of Canon Theologian at Rochester Cathedral, where she'll be installed later this month. Ruth says that her particular interest in environmental issues means that she longs to see the culture of the church change so that caring for God's earth becomes an integral part of church life rather than an optional extra. Concerned to practice what she preaches, she has an allotment, runs a food cooperative and runs a pig-keeping social enterprise with friends. We'd love to hear more about that, Ruth. Ruth's latest book, Saying Yes to Life, was commissioned by the Archbishop of Canterbury uh, as his official Lent book for 2020. And Ruth is here to explore the themes of that book with us today. She'll speak for about 40 minutes or so, and then we'll have some time for questions and we'll finish promptly at two o'clock. A colleague from our shop will be here uh, who will be selling her book at a discount. And Ruth has kindly said that she'll sign some copies for us uh, as well. So would you please welcome Ruth Valerio. Thank you. Wow, what an introduction. <laughs> that, was, that was amazing. I, um, wonderful to be here. I probably ought to say right at the start, um, in case I get questions about it later, the pig cooperative I'm not so involved with anymore, though would still happily tell you all about it and how it worked, was involved in running that with a whole group of friends from my local church and wider, probably for about 10 years. And then actually as a family, as we moved away from a meat diet, we, well, we weren't eating the meat, so there, <laughs> there wasn't much point keeping the pigs anymore. But that's been quite a, a feature of my life and of my family life for quite a while. But it's great to be here with you this morning, this afternoon. And I'm really thrilled to be able to talk to you a little bit about my new book, Saying Yes to Life, the Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent book for this year. And I, I have to say, I was very, very surprised when the invitation came through for me, uh, for me to write this. I'd actually just finished a book called L is for Lifestyle, Christian Living That Doesn't Cost the Earth. I'd finished that in the, the summer and that had come out and I was really looking forward to 2019 and to having a year where I could get out into my garden, tend my vegetables, have a bit of space at the weekend. And then just before Christmas, before 2019, I got this email that threw everything up in the air and my whole year was turned upside down as um, it's not really uh, the sort of invitation you say no to. So I knew I had to say yes and then I had to work out how I was actually going to write this book whilst also holding down a very, very full-time and demanding role as a director with Tear Fund. If you don't know about Tear Fund, Tear Fund is a Christian relief and development and advocacy organisation. We work in about 50 countries around the world. Our strapline is following Jesus where the need is greatest. And that's what we aim to do. So we work in some of the, the poorest, direst situations, 
the kind of countries that you would hear hear about regularly on the news, Syria, South Sudan, CAR, the DRC, and, and so on, and many others. And we work through the local church, and we work with the local church. So unless there's a, a disaster or an emergency situation, Tear Farm will never go into a community and do something for the community. We always go in and partner with the local church partner with diocese, work to equip and help the local church respond to the poverty needs that are in their own midst as congregations and also in the communities around them. And through that way, we find that our poverty relief work is able to be long-term and sustainable. So if we go out, if we leave a place, it doesn't matter because the work is rooted in the local church and it continues. So I have a very full-time role overseeing a whole number of teams within Tear Fund and was faced with the challenge last year of producing this book, which um, clearly I did, much to my relief. And I want to take this time to explore with you some of the themes that come out from it. Themes around God, themes around this world, are the wider creation, and themes around what it means to be human and our place as people within the wider natural world. As I do that, or one of the best ways to do that, is to go right back to the beginning, in the beginning. So if you are sitting comfortably, I'd like to tell you a story. In the beginning, words that are very familiar to many of us, I'm sure. In the beginning, before the heavens and the earth existed, lived a god and a goddess. Apsu, the god of fresh water, and Tiamat, the god of salt water. Before meadowlands or reed beds had been formed, when there were no other deities and no destinies had yet been decreed, these two, Apsu and Tiamat, mingled their waters, and from those waters came younger gods. Oh, this is sounding a bit different. Not quite the in the beginning that you were expecting, is it? Those younger gods grew in strength and stature and became, became wise and mighty. Well, what a strange way to start an Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent book. <laughs> the story goes on to talk about all these gods um, and the young gods. The young gods become unruly and they fight and they rise up against their parents and they fight them and Tiamat, the goddess, becomes this evil monster demon and she rises up with an enemy faction. She creates this big enemy army with other gods and demons uh, with names like the, the hairy hero and the scary scorpion. Can you believe it? If you thought um, you know, Marvel and whatever had, had the, the, the say on all those incredible names, actually it goes back thousands of years. You know where DC and so on get their different comic character names from. So she creates this terrible army and the gods are all asking themselves, how are we going to defeat Tiamat? How are we going to bring, the, bring her down? Various gods volunteer to go and try and sort her out, but they don't even go anywhere near her. 
until finally the one God called Marduk says, I will go create an army for me. If I go, if I defeat her, then you have to crown me the king God above all gods. So they agree and Marduk goes out, there's a hideous battle and Tiamat is destroyed and killed in a really gruesome way. And out of her body, the world is created. So I start a, a Lent book with this, this strange story of gods and goddesses. Well, that story actually is the, the dominant creation narrative from the Mesopotamian era, from the, the Babylonians. And in saying yes to life, I wanted to explore Genesis chapter one. The, uh, the brief that I got from the Archbishop was that he wanted me to look at issues of environment and poverty and for the book to be theologically rooted and global in scope. So that was my brief that I was sent off with. And as I thought about Lent, you know, I didn't want to write an environment textbook or a poverty textbook. This needed to be a strongly faith-based Lent book. And Lent, as you will know, is in, in about six weeks, is divided, in, it takes six, we cover six weeks. And so as I thought it through, I began developing the idea of basing the book on the six main days of creation and having each chapter exploring the, the, the thing, the things that are created on that day and exploring them both from a biblical perspective, but then also looking at how those themes work out in a contemporary way in, in our own lives and, and from a global perspective as well. So that's what the book does. And in case you're sitting there thinking, does she not know that uh, Genesis 1 talks about the world being created in seven days? I do know that. And so day seven, what I have made into the conclusion. So the conclusion is day seven and was a lovely way to lead towards Ad, um, Advent, Lent leading into Easter and the themes of the resurrection and Sabbath rest and so on. So chapter seven, day seven is the, the conclusion that draws it all together. But Genesis 1 can sometimes be misread and it can sometimes become a battleground for debates around evolution or creationism and science and religion and all of those big things. And as important as those questions are, actually that's not what Genesis 1 sets out to do. Genesis 1 is there and the, the following chapters is there to to teach us some very clear truths about God, about this world that he's created, and about our role in it as human beings. And we only really understand those truths if we understand the context within which Genesis 1 is written. And it's likely that Genesis found its final form, those creation narratives found their final form when the Israelites were in exile in Babylon and were facing that situation of, of dislocation and being away from their homeland and questioning, who are we? How do, how do we sing in this strange land? How do we sing to God? And the dominant narrative that they faced was this, uh, it's called Enuma Elish. 
and Marduk, the god who eventually wins and is crowned king, he was the, the god of the, Bab of the Babylonians. And this text was one way by which the Babylonians asserted Marduk and asserted their own supremacy. And so we understand Genesis 1 if we understand this strange story that it's likely responding to. So what does it teach us? Firstly, about God. So in Enuma Elish, as I've already said, you have all these gods and a goddess all fighting against each other until finally there's one who comes through as the supreme ruler. What a contrast that is to the God of Genesis 1, where there are no other gods, no other gods to fight against. God is the supreme, the mighty creator. He simply speaks and it comes to be. He says the word and there is light. He says the word and water comes into existence. He speaks the word as a psalm later on says, by your word, the world was formed. So we get this picture of a, a supreme mighty God who doesn't need to fight against other gods. And this God is creator. He is the creator of this world. We'll, we'll come back to look at what that means about our view, how we view this world today. But God is the mighty creator. However you believe this world came into existence, the Christian and the Jewish scriptures affirm that God was the originator, that God is the source of all being. So God is a mighty creator. And we get, uh, we get this as well in Job 38 and 39, a passage there are passages that you may well be very familiar with as Job has been through intense suffering and, and he cries out to God and he's had these friends who've been trying to be helpful in how they've talked to him and encouraged him or not. And God kind of thunders in, doesn't he? And really puts Job in his place. Where were you when I opened the storehouses of the whatever it is? I can't quote it off by heart. You know, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I set the winds in their place? When I, you know, just this amazing, uh, just outpouring of God's might. And, and I wonder for some of us, depending on our church tradition, whether God has become too comfortable for us and whether we may too easily forget the mightiness and the awesomeness of God and of who he is. And yet in Job 38 and 39, we also get a different picture of God. At the beginning of, of Job 39, talks of how God looks at the doe giving birth to her fawn. He knows the, the doe. He asks Job, do you know how the, the doe give birth, gives birth? Do you know what her time is? Do you watch her? Do you see her bringing up her fawn? Do you see her as she crouches down and, and rears her offspring? And there's this beautiful intimacy there as well. That God isn't only a mighty God, God is also a close God, an intimate God. A God maybe who also crouches down as the doe crouches down. And maybe there are some of us here who 
need to know that God is there with us, that God is interested in the everyday stuff of our lives, that God isn't just a mighty creator God or only a mighty creator God, He's also a loving, intimate God who knows us, who crouches down with us as we are involved in the everyday life of the stuff that we do every day. God is there with us. So we see this wonderful picture of God and that's something that I explore in different ways through the, the chapters and the different days of creation. In one chapter, I look at the question, why does God create? Why did he create the world? And explore some of the thinking, particularly Eastern Orthodox thinking, around um, th this creation being an overflowing of the love of the Trinity. I haven't got the time to go into it now. Just to give you a little taster of that, you'll have to read it. It's either chapter two or chapter three. I can't remember which one now. So this question, who is God, runs throughout the narrative of saying yes to life. And then what about this world that he has created? What can we learn about that through Genesis 1? Well, in Enuma Elish, as I said, the world is made out of the defeated goddess, Tiamat. So <clears throat> Marduk gets her body and he slices her, uh, two slices, so slices her in three. It's a very gruesome depiction in the actual text. And he divides her body into three and out of her body he creates the world. And the, from the bottom part you've got the sea and then the land and then the air. And he creates the, the hills out of her breasts. And it goes into this, um, I think the rivers, the Euphrates comes from her crying eyes. It, you know, it's a long description. So the world comes from this defeated goddess. And what's the, what's the impact of that? Well, the impact of that is that the world is seen as coming from something evil and therefore the world isn't good. The world is something that you don't really want to be associated with. You don't want to be tainted with it because it's evil. It's something you want to escape from and not be a part of. What a contrast to what we see in Genesis 1 where right at the end in verse 31, we're told that God looks at all that he has made and he says, it is very good. My um, own personal translation of that is that God looks at all that he has made and he says, it is fantastic. This is wonderful. Look at what I've made. This is amazing. Such a contrast to the depiction of the world that the Israelites were, were kind of living in and fighting against. And so important for us to get hold of as well, because I think many of us may be from churches that have inherited a, tr a tradition that comes more from the Babylonian myth and from Greek dualism than it does from the, the Hebrew scriptures. Our Christian theology has often bought into an idea that this world is evil, that it's something we shouldn't be tainted with. It's something we want to escape from. It's not something that we want to be a part of. But Genesis 1.31 tells us that matter matters to God. God absolutely loves this world. And one of the things that 
I loved about writing this book is in each chapter, whether I'm looking at light or water, land and trees, birds, fish of the sea, uh, etc. You can go through the different days. I've, I do a, an exploration of well, some scientific stuff. Part of what I wanted to do in the book is inspire in us a fresh love for this world that God has made. So there are some uh, amazing facts and figures, incredible things about our galaxy, about the sun and the moon and the stars. Some wonderful things about light and about water, about trees and how they communicate with each other. But let me read out to you what is perhaps my um, favourite passage in the book. And this is in chapter six, when I'm looking at day six, let the land produce living creatures. And I talk about the, the phrase that, um, all, that the creatures were made, that it was teeming with life. In other words, we share this world with the most incredible and wonderful mix of strange, colourful, funny, scary, cuddly, scaly, odd, tiny, huge creatures that we could ever possibly imagine. Who could have thought up the star-shaped mole of North America with its 22 little tentacles on the end of its nose that it uses to find food? Or the tiny, elusive primate called the Tarsier of Southeast Asia with its huge eyes, ability to turn its head 180 degrees, and super long back legs which enable it to leap up to five metres from branch to branch. Who would make up the saiga antelope of Eurasia with its strange nose that comes down over its mouth? Or the aardvark of sub-Saharan Africa with its long tongue and kangaroo-like ears? Or the lion-tailed macaque of India with its stunning silver-white mane and tail that ends in a tuft like a lion's? Who would think to put such tufty ears on the European lynx? And whoever could have imagined the duck-billed platypus with its duck-like bill and beaver-like tail? Wherever in the world we live, in the city or in the countryside, we have amazing creatures around us, even if they're all not all as fancy as those just mentioned. And I go on to say, why not pause for a moment to think about the animals that live around you? and give thanks to God for such an abundance of life. So we live in a wonderful world. And yet we know that we live in a wounded world. We live in a world that is suffering the terrible consequences of, well, the biblical language would be our sin, our wrongdoing, our misuse, the, the wrong way by which we have lived in this world. And each chapter, whether I'm looking at water or light or trees or living creatures, whatever it is, I explore also the challenges that we're facing in our world around these things. So chapter two that looks at the separation of the waters, I look at water today and think about issues of drought and of flooding, of sanitation and health, the lack of access to clean water. We are living in a wounded world, aren't we? And there are three issues in particular that we need to take notice of and be acting on. The first 
uh, I'm sure I don't need to say, of course, is our climate crisis. I could give um, many a long lecture on this, so I won't. I know we all know that we are facing a climate crisis of unprecedented levels. And I've been speaking on issues of the climate um, and writing on them probably for about 25 years now. And it's, um, well, I, I realized with a sickening thud the other day that all of the things that I used to talk about as predictions you know, this is what's happening. If we don't take action now, this is what is going to happen in the future. All of those things that were predictions, we are seeing now. This year seems to be, a, or last year, seems to be a, a coming together of so many, so many problems. Extreme weather events, the bleaching of the coral reef, crops dying. I, I mean, I could go on, couldn't I? And we, it feels like we have reached this particularly heightened moment with climate change. And in my work at Tear Fund, well, as Tear Fund, we've been, working, we've been talking about this as an organisation for about 20 years, because even all those years ago, we were beginning to get reports from the communities that we worked into that something strange was happening. The rains weren't coming, the crops weren't growing. When the rains did come, they came late and then they came so strong that then there was flooding that washed away all the food and there was starvation and there was disease. But we see it increasingly. And so as Tear Fund now, a lot of our work is focused on the climate crisis, both trying to uh, advocate to governments and to global institutions to be changing their practices, advocating, um, encouraging individuals to be living differently and then working with the communities that we work with around things like climate smart agriculture, renewable energy and so on. Some of these things that will help the communities face our climate crisis. So we are facing a climate crisis. We are also facing terrible biodiversity loss. And that wonderful passage that I just read out, you know, we live, we have lived in this beautiful world teeming with life, but that teeming is, is collapsing. We, we used to be, we used to experience flocks, are they called flocks of butterflies? What are they called? Lots of butterflies, swarm, what are they called? <laughs> Lots of butterflies. And now we get excited if we see one peacock butterfly or one red admiral or something in our garden. This isn't only about the polar bear, though that of course is extremely serious, but right around the world and closer to home, we are seeing species disappearing around us. The hedgehog being maybe one of our most loved mammals, having suffered a 99% decline, and now in the UK on the extinction list. So we're facing biodiversity loss, terrible biodiversity. And what, how much is, is behind those, those sanitised words, biodiversity loss? Actually, this is millions of creatures dying and species that God loves going extinct. And then thirdly, we're facing a plastic problem, aren't we? And we are drowning in plastic. This has become so well highlighted to us over the last couple of, over the last few years, 
but it's having a big impact. It's having a massive impact on the seas with marine plastic pollution and we're all familiar with the pictures of the, the albatross chick and the, the whale and so on and the turtle. It's also having an impact on us and there's increasing research now showing that we may actually be breathing in plastic all the time because it's so pervasive, it's in the air, particularly in our cities. And we know that we are now ingesting it because it is so embedded into our food chain. What we don't know is what the long-term impacts of that are going to be on our health. And then plastic is also causing serious problems for people living in poverty. Around 2 billion people in our world today don't have proper access to waste management systems. And therefore, they are living in communities where plastic and rubbish is just piled high. And it's causing big problems to their health. There's an increase in diarrheal diseases. There's an increase in malaria because the upturned pots gather water and create perfect little breeding grounds for mosquitoes. It can lead to death when rivers are so choked with plastic that when there are heavy rains that then there's big flooding. This is an area that we're focusing on a lot as Tear Fund, the impact of plastic on people living in poverty. That's too many Ps for one sentence. And we're, one of the areas we're working in is a slum area in Brazil. And we're supporting the work of a local Baptist church that's engaged in a, a whole load of recycling and reusing and women's cooperative work there. And it was started because one woman living in the slum after some heavy rains that flooded the river because of all the plastic, all the, the waste that was there, she looked out of her window and she saw the dead body of her neighbour float past from the floods. And when she saw that, she knew that they couldn't live in the way they were living anymore and they had to start dealing with plastic. And so this is something that we work on as Tear Farm, working with communities on the ground. And then we're also running a campaign called the Rubbish Campaign, focusing on Coca-Cola, Unilever, Nestle and PepsiCo. They are the four biggest consumer-facing plastic producers, calling on them to change their practices. And uh, you can find any of this online if you want to find more information about it. So we live in a wounded world and Archbishop Winston Halapua, who was a former Archbishop of Polynesia, he tells of how when something of importance in the Pacific Islands needs to be signalled, they blow a conch horn. And he wrote a letter for creation to the Archbishop and in it he says, we need to blow a conch to alert the world of danger not only to ourselves, but to the whole planet Earth. We need to call for a working together to care for our common home. We need to raise prophetic voices today. We face great crises and need to face them together. We have the opportunity to forward a new movement of caring more deeply for God's creation, of celebrating its wonders and of discovering our common humanity. And this book, along with many other things, my aim is to blow that conch horn and alert us to the dangers that we are facing. 
but not just alert us to the dangers, then actually help us find some answers and take action in our own lives and in the lives of our churches for those of us here who are from churches. And so each chapter, alongside the biblical faith reflection on what was created on that day, alongside the scientific things exploring the wonders of the natural world, and then alongside the contemporary issues that we face, then looks at what can we do? What can we do about water, our water problems? What can we do about deforestation? What can we do about our marine problem, about species extinction, about our climate crisis? And so each chapter has very practical uh, suggestions as well. It's a book that's there not only to be interesting, but to give you some answers and to inform you and equip you and help you and your church, if that's applicable, to make some changes and to take some positive action. And it also draws on lots of examples from churches all around the world who are already engaged and are taking action. So let me just read out to you one paragraph that comes from the conclusion. Where shall I start? So I see churches all around the world responding to the call to look after the planet that's been entrusted to us. In Thailand, Huey Mei Due Church is now involved in garbage collection because waste had become a huge problem in the area. And Ku Mu Church has planted a vegetable garden for the local community. In Australia, Tugaranong Uniting runs a charity shop to encourage reusing and recycling. And they have active activists who belong to climate change groups. In the US, Trinity Christian Reform Church in Michigan promotes caring for the whole creation as an integral part of its preaching. And practically, it's adopted a stretch of creek that runs near the church that it looks after. In Argentina, the Church of God in Mendoza has won an award for its litter picking scheme in the Central Park. And the Anglican Diocese of Northern Argentina has been monitoring deforestation for the last decade providing information to the provincial government in order to help the government stop deforestation. In the UK, Portsmouth Cathedral has become the first cathedral to publish its carbon footprint and is actively reducing its emissions. And the Gate Church in Dundee has a whole project dedicated to carbon saving and is aiming to become the greenest church in Scotland. And even here in St Paul's, St Paul's has at least a bronze, I can't remember whether it's silver or not, but it has a bronze eco-church award for the work that it does here around sustainability, which I don't know if I dare offer you, if you would like me to offer you to answer any questions on that, because you might not know yourself. But if you want to find out more, I'm sure there are ways that you can. And the eco-church scheme was actually launched here four years ago just in the in the crypt out there and to the right so St Paul's here is also involved in doing things to take care of this world there are churches all around the world who are getting engaged but we need to see that more 
We need to, we need systemic change. I sometimes liken the church to being like a giant, a sleeping giant. And if we could wake that giant up, we could see some serious change happen. And these, the little just mentions that I've given are like signs that the giant is waking up. It's stretching, it's pulling back the bedclothes, it's kind of beginning to wake up, it's getting out of bed, but we need so much more. This needs to be a central part of our agenda as Christians and as churches. And my prayer is that through saying yes to life, that saying yes to life might, might play a small part in seeing that happen. The exciting thing in this country is that the Church of England's Lent campaign, it's 40 days of reflection and um, children's resources, have linked up with the Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent book. Who, who knew that that might not always be the case? So they brought the two together and the daily Lent reflections, which you can get in a little booklet, um, Live Lent is the campaign, Caring for God's Earth. The daily reflections have been taken from this book. So now across, the, across England, we can see churches get engaged and there's a youth resource for this as well. And my prayer is this, that this might play a small part over Lent and beyond in waking up the giant of the sleeping church. Thank you.